So we're not getting Governor DeWine's reopening plan for the state today. He now says that will be Monday. But we have plenty to talk about on This Week in the CLE, the coronavirus podcast from Cleveland.com. I'm Chris Quinn, editor at Cleveland.com, with Laura Johnston, Jane Cahoon, and Chris Mornowski. Happy Friday at long last. And it's an especially happy one for you, Jane Cahoon, because you won't have to marshal all those stories about the reopening in the middle of your Friday evening happy hour. Yeah, well, I'm sure you'll find some other way to make my life difficult. Oh, man. Way to jinx everybody. Wow. All right. Just for that, I'm going to find something. Okay. Just how far will the work-at-home movement grow in Cleveland, and what will it do to the downtown real estate market? We talked about this in a previous episode, but the Cleveland.com reporting team published all sorts of good material about it Thursday. Chris Warnowski, let's start with Evan McDonald's thorough piece, which seems to say everyone now knows that the work from home trend has advantages. Yeah. So we've we've actually talked to a lot of companies in Northeast Ohio who said, you know, we're already headed down this road and 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 that the the movement toward work from home was happening, you know, well before coronavirus. But as we sort of speculated before that this is going to kind of push us down that road a little quicker. And companies are sort of starting to see some of the advantages of this. I was surprised by Bob Smith's comments because, you know, he's the chair of Jobs Ohio. He's a longtime Northeast Ohio business guy. I mean, he's very well known. And he said that the coronavirus has basically ended the myths about stay at home, that people are actually working harder when they are at home than when in an office. Right. And so it's, you know, you can interpret that in a couple of ways. It's it's for as much as we work hard at home, I think for for some people, especially a lot of friends of mine who are in in white collar jobs, they they talk a little they talk a lot about how it's it's difficult to turn off work. And so, you know, I, I think it's a great upside that that people are working hard at home and that and that companies that were reluctant to do this because they were afraid that they're employees would sit around and play video games all day or something, you know, it's, it's, but, but it's nice. You know, I think, you know, some of the advantages that we've talked about are, is just, you know, being able to use moments during your day to do stuff like walk your dog or run an errand. And, 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 and so, you know, there, there are great upsides. Well, no commute. I mean, for people to commute. I, um, I, I was also interested. It said that, one of the reasons for the better productivity is because people aren't being point, pulled into pointless meetings. Now, I'm still being pulled into pointless meetings, <laughs> but, but it's but that's fascinating that one of the ways people get more work done is by not having to sit and listen to people drone on. Yeah, I mean, I think this is really going to you're really going to see over the next few uh, years, like what what managers are justifying their existence by holding pointless meetings. Like, <laughs> oh boy, this is really dangerous for me. But even well, a giant company like Eaton was, was in this saying, yeah, we got thousands more people working from home and it's, and it's not a problem. Right. And I think like I, what I thought was really fascinating about uh, what the gentleman from Eaton was talking about is the ability for them to inspect products remotely, yeah. which is, you know, it, it's, you're starting to see things like zoom and this technology being used in ways that I don't know that it was ever envisioned, or maybe it was envisioned and, and society is catching up to, you know, the, you know, what the creators of these things had sort of decided they wanted their products to be. But he was saying that they can actually do their, 
they're testing the ability to actually do inspect their products remotely as opposed to having somebody show up in person and do it. It just I, I think this is just going to keep growing. So reporter Eric Isaac did a piece on what this might mean for downtown real estate. Everyone seemed to agree that post coronavirus, there'll be some kind of drop in demand for downtown office space. If more people work from home, even though we can't predict exactly. So what did Eric find? Um, I mean, he found sort of mixed belief in that in that notion. I think there there are some people who probably have a a vested interest in not doom forecasting the entire commercial real estate of downtown. Right. But, you know, there were some people who were saying, like, look, you know, a lot of downtowns have already smartly started the transition from being a place of like where all the commercial office space is to be, you know, I mean, a lot of our old office buildings are now apartments. And, and, and so I I think in in a weird way, there, there are some advantages that Cleveland has over some other bigger cities that, that we're still sort of doubling down on putting office buildings and things like that downtown. Now, you know, we have some big projects that are supposed to happen, but, but, uh, but, but let's, but let's stick with the existing space because this idea that Cleveland has converted so much to residential. Yeah. There's a lot that's residential, but you have key tower and the national city building and the medical mutual building. They're not in any way residential. And mm-hmm. if they empty out, you know, what does it mean? What does it mean for Sherwin Williams? They're about to drop a ton of money on a building filled with office space and even though they said they're standing pat, it sounded like they put some wiggle room in there. Like we have to see what's ahead. Right. And, you know, you have to think that, you know, given all of the, the, the tax revenue that the county and the city, you know, I mean, there, there, there's going to have to be some reconsideration, I think, on both sides of this, because, you know, I, I, I mean, I, it, it just, it doesn't seem feasible really. I mean, given that everybody's, sort of embracing the work from home notion that that Sherwin Williams is going to need as much space as it needs. Now this Well, let's, again, but, let's and, talk, but they're going to be competing for workers, right? So so I could go to, you know, say Medical Mutual sends a lot of allows people to work from home because, you know, they can. And I have a choice between Sherwin Williams jobs and a Medical Mutual job. Well, if I'm allowed to work at home and I don't have to do the commute and it's it fits my lifestyle more, damn, man, I may find that that's more competitive. So for a Sherwin-Williams, they might have to reduce their floor space to remain competitive for workers. Right. And and, and the other thing I don't think we really touched on that that might also impact the what, what exists, like the key towers in the National City Building, like you were talking about, is that, you know, I, I, I mean, you can talk to people who think that the rent market here and the, in the leasing space market here is all is already kind of inflated. So this might actually sort of deflate the, the cost of real estate and the cost of, of renting space and, and actually make it more feasible for companies to, to, to locate in buildings like that. I, yeah, I think that would be, that would be interesting if the, if the opposite happened because the rates went down yeah. and there's certain ones that, you, that, that they're going to want people to be there, but well, let, let's move on to a different element that that would be good news for the workers because it would save money, but it's bad news for the city. It's the income tax. Reporter Bob Higgs did a couple of stories about this. We talked about the theme earlier in the week, but what Bob reported yesterday is that there clearly will be lawsuits, and those lawsuits will have a very good chance of success. People that are paying their income taxes to the city while working from home all these weeks likely will be due refunds. Right, Laura Johnston? 
Yeah, I think the city is going to argue it's best that people are not due refunds since 85% of the city's $444 million in income tax revenue comes from suburbanites. But a Columbus organization told Bob, uh, and they specialize in constitutional rights, that they're already contemplating a lawsuit against cities that want to keep the income taxes of people who are working remotely right now. And a lot of us are. It's not just the office workers whose taxes the city is losing. Reporter Emily Bamforth had a story that shows some other high-dollar people won't be paying taxes to Cleveland either. Right. This is two-pronged. Um, the city is looking at 10 to $15 million it would lose just from entertainment not happening, from concerts, productions at Playhouse Square, uh, plus all the professional sports. That's because performers and athletes normally pay part of their income tax to the city for when they're in Cleveland. But even bigger chunk of this money is that people won't be paying their 8% taxes on tickets and parking. And, and that really adds up. There is a potential upside to all this vacuuming out of the downtown. Reporter Pete Krauss checked in with the biking community on what it all might mean. Laura, Pete's story noted that bikers have come out of the woodwork during the pandemic. Right. You've seen them, right? Without cars, it's like cyclists and walkers and runners are taking over the street. Everybody's trying to spread out as they get fresh air and exercise. Does that hint at a at a future downtown Cleveland? Will we learn from this to try and do a better job of setting of setting aside the roads more, especially if they're much more empty because people are working at home? It might. If If people continue to work from home for good, or at least some of the days, then we won't They won't be commuting to downtown as much, and then we'll have less cars on the roads and more space for dedicated bike lanes. You could have pavers and planters, things that really make you feel safe rather than just like a stripe on the road. And that would make it safer for people to commute on their bikes if they wanted to. Planners are seeing really big opportunities for revamping the status quo. All right, it's Friday, so let's do big thought here. What's fascinating (laughs) about all this is that Cleveland spent 20 years making the downtown into what this region celebrates. Great restaurants and nightlife and all the sports and theater. And in a matter of weeks, it's all in peril. So what is a forward-thinking city doing a crisis like this? Not saying that we're a forward-thinking city, <laughs> but but this is bad. I mean, this clearly, there the, the future of downtown Cleveland is not the same as the recent years. So where does that vision come from? How do you plan? And, and and surmount this obstacle. Does anyone have any thought on that? I think I, I, if you if you'd noticed something that had been happening here a while, I, I, you started to see like I I live in Ohio City, and and so we're already a pretty you know everything here has pretty much been sapped up. But you were starting to see all of the the more in, some of the more innovative restaurants and things like that were starting to locate out in the suburbs. So you're, you're starting to see restaurants in, in Lakewood and, and other places. And you start, like, I, I have friends who are starting to buy homes in like old Brooklyn and, and different parts of the city. And so what I think was, I, I think with some of the limitations of downtown already, I think a lot of people were looking at different parts of, of our region to locate like their new businesses. So I think before this happened, I think that the issues like parking and and convenience were sort of turning people away from 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 being downtown. So I think there was already some some movement toward. Okay, all right. So so can that change now? If you have less demand 
for the parking because people don't have to commute down there because they're working from home. Does downtown become more of a residential village? Look, you, you live down there and, you know, the workers have not been there now for five, six weeks. Have you felt like you live in a residential downtown area or, or is it still spread out so much that it doesn't really feel like that? Yeah, it really doesn't feel like that. And I don't think it just feels empty right now. It, it's, it, it does feel, you know, I mean, it just, it, everything sort of just feels vacant, but you know, it's our, our downtown is, is unique in a lot of ways for a city of our size because we're, we're, it's really built around, you know, I mean, we have three professional sports teams that play down there that well, at, some point, at some point will come back. So, you know, it's in, in, in where I'm from in St. Louis, the sports, the sports teams are really like everybody pretty much just lives in the county and, and the neighborhoods and, and downtown, downtown is not as vibrant as it is here. And so it's the Cardinals are a destination and, and people come to it and then they go home. Here, you know, here you have more people sort of living here. So could could that be the vision then? Is that if you if you lose what's been down there, would more people want to live downtown? You know, if they put in playgrounds and they put in the bike lanes and and you had more retail to serve the people living down there, does it become an attractive place or without all that stuff you just mentioned? are the very reasons you live downtown gone. If, you know, it, if you, I mean, it could, but it just requires vision. And I think, you but know, there, there I, is a lot that is going for it right now already. It's, it, they're talking about putting all of those housing and access on the lake. It, we have good walkability. There are beautiful public spaces on the mall that are usually empty, but could have something done with them with some vision. I really do think it could be a really cool place to live. It could have this cachet to it. If they, think about it the right way and market it the right way. But I think you guys are right in that it is going to take someone with some thought. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How old are the people who are dying of the coronavirus in greater Cleveland? We are getting more and more data about the people getting hit by this virus in our region. And where there's data, there's data guru Rich Exner. Jane Cahoon, what's the latest from Mr. Exner? Well, Rich tracked two trends that have shown up in the Ohio coronavirus deaths. Uh, number one, that they've struck particularly hard in Northeast Ohio, and number two, among older people. Three out of four people who have died were at least 70 years old, and 13 counties that we'll call Northeast Ohio, you know, stretching from Lorraine all the way east and then down south to the Canton area, they account for 54% of the deaths but only 34% of the state's population and nearly half of the people who died are 80 or older. What we're missing in our data, and it's not our fault, it's the state's fault, is the underlying conditions. We've seen data out of New York in which the people who were hit hardest had multiple conditions like obesity and heart disease and diabetes, but we don't have those conditions for Ohio or the Cleveland area, right? Right. We we don't get that kind of breakdown. We get age and gender and race. But one could assume that older people are more likely to have these types of underlying conditions. Do we make anything of the fact that the Northeast Ohio counties have so many deaths? Is it just that we are more populous or do we is are more old people living up here? 
Well, I think we've seen throughout the country that the major population centers are being hit hard by by this. But uh, take, for instance, Mahoning County, where their state uh, per capita, I mean, their average per capita is way higher than the state average in terms of numbers of cases. And they've had a lot of deaths there. And one of the theories that's emerged on that is that they have an aging population. And I think Ohio as a whole has an older population. Okay. You are listening to This Week in the CLE from Cleveland.com. What will Cleveland's restaurant scene look like when the shutdown order is lifted? Reporters Annie Nikoloff and Mark Bona invested a good bit of time talking to people in the restaurant industry to find out what they are thinking. Laura Johnston, what's the upshot? Well, it depends on which restaurant and which direction the owners want to go. Some are figuring out how to design seating to work with social distancing. They're stocking up on supplies that they need to protect employees. But some are doubling down on takeout and delivery. I think people are going to have to be creative here and figure out what works with their clientele and their kind of restaurant. Part of the problem is, is that Governor Mike DeWine has offered almost no guidance yet. Some that we talked to speculated they would be at half capacity, but Zach Brule said he can't break even until he's at 100% capacity. Yeah, Brule owns a lot of the big fancy restaurants in town, the big names, including La Batro and Cowan Hubbard, and he's going to change to paper menus that you can just throw away instead of bound ones that a lot of people's hands touch. But yeah, he said he can't just, you know, slash the size of, of the number of people in the restaurant. One question no one can answer is whether anyone will go to a restaurant to eat. I was a little bit surprised there was less emphasis on convincing people that they're doing everything they can to be sanitary and stop the spread of the coronavirus. Isn't part of the, the survival of the restaurants dependent on convincing people that you're taking steps to keep the people you're feeding safe? Absolutely. You're going to have to feel safe to go anywhere. Um, especially if you're going to be opening your mouth and putting stuff in. But you talked about this the other day. You're also going to have to make people feel like they're doing a good thing for their community by going to out to eat. Like, we're all in this together. I'm coming here because I want your business to survive. I want to be a good neighbor. And I'm feeling good about myself about this. Even if it's not as safe as eating at my home, I'm willing to take this risk for you. One guy said his answer might be to serve the food like takeout and then have diners bus it to their own tables to reduce the interaction and reduce the spread of the virus. That's a strategy I'd not thought of, but you know, that could work. Provides the great meal without exposing people. I wonder if that might become a DeWine guideline. Jane Cahoon, we don't even know if restaurants will be part of DeWine's strategy to reopen Ohio when he announces it on Monday. Right. The the governor pretty much said the plan is still a work in progress and he's he's just not ready to announce anything yet. But President Trump's guidelines for a phase one of the reopening do include restaurants. So we're going to have to see here. I'm just guessing here, but if he allows, if DeWine allows restaurants to open, the the rules are going to be really strict, I think. You got to think, though, that he wants to open them because it's such a big employment sector. It's this week in the CLE. Will we have high school football and other sports this fall? Cleveland.com's Matt Gould did some checking on this and found the answer is not all that clear. Laura Johnston. Like everything else, really, it depends on the coronavirus and the rules the state puts in place to deal with it. The Ohio High School Athletic Association officially canceled their spring season just 
a few days ago. Now they're looking at delays for fall. Practices for fall can generally start August 1st, and nobody has any idea what what the world is going to look like then. What are some of the questions they need to answer before they make the decision? Well, they need to know if doctors are going to be available to provide the required physicals. Um, Will artificial surfaces need disinfecting? There's probably going to be a whole lot of studies done about spreading the virus outside that they're going to have to look at. These are big questions. And there's a there's a new study on that out overnight out of uh, I think it was out of China where where almost none of the cases that they studied were spread outside. It was almost always a transmission indoors, which should give some hope to people who want to go to, to sport outings. But the virus is contagious. How can you have contact sports like football or even soccer if this is still out there? It seems like the chances of those sports being played by high school kids are pretty slim because of the liability the schools would have. Right. It's not like you can play football while staying six feet away from everyone. We don't even know how you're going to be able to social distance kids at school, let alone on a field. The only good part is, and I was thinking about this as I signed my son up for hockey, you have a lot of equipment on and like literally in hockey, you don't have a single part of your body that's showing other than your face and that's in a mask. So um, it's pretty close to that for football, but maybe everyone's just going to have to play golf and tennis or swim and stay away from each other. (laughs) Okay. Well, like so much of this virus. The future is not at all clear. It's this week in the CLE. Has the case of the Chagrin Falls guy accused of price gouging on masks ended? Chris Ranowski, we talked about this case twice before. Once when the guy was sued by the attorney general for selling $2 masks for 36 bucks, And again, when the guy responded that he's a businessman, and had the masks left over and put them on eBay to see what the market was. Now we have conclusion. Yeah, this actually happened. This all got resolved very quickly. Like, I I don't know if you were as surprised at how fast this this ended as I was. So he ended up uh, the gentleman who who was accused of this. He we had a story last week that that Yost and and the Ohio Attorney General's office were going to sue him. And and he came out and, and sent us a letter the next day and 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 had a very reasonable explanation that, you know, I bought these. Well before the pandemic, I was trying to sell them to to make some money because my business has been hurt. I didn't, you know, and, and he, he basically just sort of comped to it and basically said, look, I want to do what's right. Let's get this resolved. And so yesterday, uh, the AG's office announced that he uh, settled it. It won't go on his permanent record and, and he's going to pay a $1,500 cost of the investigation and donate the masks to uh some some medical organizations so does he think he did anything wrong he does not think he did anything wrong and and it's you know i mean this is open for interpretation i mean you can you can you you i could see this either way like i i could see there 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 i feel like there's way more nefarious things going on right now than a guy who is trying to sell masks for two uh you know uh what was it? A $34 markup on eBay. So, so, but he, he, he's sort of sticking by the idea that, you know, I, I did not commit a crime that, that this was, you know, something that I got caught doing that I didn't realize it was breaking the law. I, yeah. But I give credit to Dave Yost for calling it out. This came at a time when people were being asked to donate their masks and, and he was, it all ended well. And you're right. It ended really fast. Yeah. And I think I look, I, I think, 
I think Yost gets accomplished here what he wanted to accomplish, which was he found somebody, he made an example of them. Right. And 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 the idea is like, hey, look at what happened to this guy. You're gonna you're gonna get embarrassed and you're gonna have to pay a fine and you're gonna have to give up your stuff. And and so I think, you know, I think I think the the outcome sort of serves what needed to be done in this, which was to warn people like, look, we will go after you if if you try to to gouge people who really need this equipment. Yeah, I think Jeff's got exactly what he wanted, which is mm-hmm. which is smart. It's this yeah. week in the CLE. How is a Cleveland company helping end the shortage of coronavirus testing swabs? It turns out that the factory that makes the most cotton swabs that you get in America is in Cleveland. Who knew? And it got approval this week to turn on a dime and start making a new kind of swab to be used for COVID-19 testing. Jane Cahoon, what is this company and how did we not know about it before? Well, the company is called U.S. Cotton and it's on the west side of Cleveland. It employs 750 people and it's a subsidiary of a North Carolina-based textile company. Sabrina Eaton uh interviewed the the CEO this week and and had an had an interesting talk with him. They make 70 billion cotton swabs each year. <laughs> most I can't of even the cotton, that. Most of the cotton swabs made in the US and as you said, who knew? I, but but this week the FDA approved a, a different type of swab that they are adjusting their manufacturing process to to make. But for the, and COVID it, testing. I'm sorry. And the guy's explanation to Sabrina was fascinating. So normally they make cotton swabs, but you can't use those for coronavirus testing. And he explained why. Yes, I didn't know this, but it's because cotton is a, a plant and paper comes from a tree. So they carry their it's you know, they carry their own DNA. So you have to make a testing swab that's neutral without the DNA. So so what was the solution they came up with? So they're using polyester for the tip and plastic for the stick. And they, they've adjusted to make like 3 million of these things every week. And these aren't those really long ones that we saw in those agonizing videos where they pretty much ram them into your, the back of your brain. <laughs> these, are, these are shorter, right? Correct. They're, they're shorter. And eventually they hope people are going to be able to use them to, to test themselves. That's that's the ultimate goal. But they they just would uh, you just have to put them in inside your nose, not not all the way back like that. It's very cool. I had no idea we were the cotton swab capital. We're going to have to profile (laughs) that company this week in the CLE. Will we have July 4th fireworks this year? Pretty much everything else about this summer is being canceled. So we asked reporter Robin Goyce to find out what is up with one of the high points of summer. Independence Day fireworks. Laura Johnston, what do we know? I think Akron is the only city that's so far canceled their big July 4th fireworks. So communities are trying to figure out ways for people to watch them while maintaining distance. And how, how can you do that? <laughs> <laughs> right, you're picturing all these people in a park crammed on picnic blankets and the drive home. But maybe it'll be like a drive-in where you watch from your car in a parking lot. Or some towns are talking about putting it really high up in the air so people can watch from their homes. Maybe they'll have a Labor Day fireworks show instead, assuming that the virus has gotten less potent by then. I've always thought we should have them at New Year's so you don't have to stay up so late to wait for it to get dark. So the the story was kind of cool and it made you think they really want to make this happen that, that, yeah, we've canceled all the concerts and the sports, 
But but the people behind the fireworks feel like America needs something. The Downtown Cleveland Alliance, which sponsors the Cleveland show, seems like it's going to do everything it can to try and find a solution because this might be the only thing you can do all summer. I agree. I mean, while a lot of people have just pulled the plug on big events and you could easily see them doing that, rather, um, these groups are really trying really hard to get creative and find a way to make it happen. Okay, well, I hope they pull it off because we will need something to look forward to this summer. It's this week in the CLE. And we end another long week. I ask you guys what your plans are every week, but they're pretty much the same because we're all stuck at home. But I'll ask anyway, what are your plans for the weekend? (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm the editor on duty, so that's what Uh, I'm doing. Uh, probably just a bike ride, hanging out with the dog, maybe go to one of the parks if it's not, you know. Oh, did you get a bike? Winter. You talked about, yeah, I did get a, I got, I got a bike. There's a bike shop right across the street from my apartment. And I was like, you know what? It's a good time to buy something from a a local business. So I I went and bought a bike from them. Yeah. Any big zoom parties planned? (laughs) (laughs) I don't have any. Is it going to be a good weekend to bike? Cause maybe we'll, we'll get that going. I don't know. I'm, I'm going to look, I'm going to probably bike regardless because I just need to get out of the house. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my plan is to take a couple of days off from the podcast. Thank you, Laura, Jane, and Chris. Thank you, the listeners, for spending some time with us. We'll return next week. 